Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. The Australasian success of Spitenza's album True Colours, with its hit single I Got You, brought the band new fans, more fame, a bit more money, and the possibility of an international hit record. But they weren't about to rest there. In the middle of 1980, as they readied themselves to promote the LP in England and North America, Spitenza began recording the next album, which was to be known as both Corroboree and Wyatta. Bass player Nigel Griggs. We... We're consci- very conscious of not repeating true colours. We always looking to move on to something different. We, we, we felt it was a trap to sort of get stuck on, on the thought of how did we make true colours. Or what made I Got You such a big hit? Let's do it again. Maestro, Eddie Rayner. The record just doesn't sound as good as True Colours. It hasn't got the same vibe. Probably hasn't got as many good songs either, either for that matter, but it's got, some, it's got some pretty good ones. I mean, how on earth One Step Ahead was ever a hit, I'll never know. I, can't, I still can't figure it out to this day. Neil Finn. One Step Ahead is quite a subtle song in, in lots of ways. It was, uh, I was a bit embarrassed to play it to the band when, we, when I first brought it to rehearsal because I, I couldn't really hear it myself. Here's Neil Finn's original songwriting demo of One Step Ahead. I'm very lucky to be in a, a, a great band that can make the songs better than what I did, and so I was very pleased in the studio that that one turned out so well. It was a very simple song, really. It's got no chorus, though, that's why I quite like it. Well, it's yeah. got no obvious chorus. Sometimes I don't know where I'm going 
Split Ends drummer Mal Green. I thought Corroboree was kind of um, a replica of True Colours, but I thought some of the songs were a bit more sophisticated and the playing was a bit more sophisticated. She's I like the music of Iris, but I can't believe I let a lyric like that go out. It's just unbelievably ridiculous, but anyway, it's okay. <laughs> I probably thought it was an element of humour in there, but I didn't expect anybody to get that at this point. The producer of True Colours, David Tickle, was on production duty again for Wyatta. This time round, the sessions were a little more tense. It was definitely more stress. There was more argumentation going on. And uh, although I think Tim is an absolute genius, I really love him, but it was, I know when we finished the Wyatta record, Tim basically accused me, he said, why is it you play favoritism with Neil? I just, you know, how come his songs always come out better than mine? And I was like, I was dumbfounded. <clears throat> and I had to say to Tim, I said, well, you know the biggest difference? When I work with Neil and uh, his songs, he takes direction beautifully. And then when I do the overdubs, he just left me alone uh, with whoever I was working with, whether it be Noel or whoever. So I'd, I'd be able to explore the parts and the sounds with the musicians. On the other hand, when it was Tim's songs, Tim, he wanted to be in the control room on a lot of the overdubs, and he'd be in there pacing up and down, just in a bad mood about, I don't like that, and I don't like this. <laughs> so every single overdub we went through had a bit more torture going on with it. So Tim's songs were just more restless because he was restless. With David, uh, I think that somehow we ended up being a bit disillusioned with him by the end of Wyatt. You know, being that kind of age as well and having such success and, and people saying how much they love him and all this kind of thing, it did make him a little bit more intolerable. <laughs> Tim Finn. Especially when it came to mixing time, there were doubts that he hadn't maybe gone off the deep end. You know, there were, he, he got these speakers that were so big, they, they were about the size of the back of a truck. We'd go in the studio and everything would be like so loud. I'd be trying to hear the bass, but I'd, all I could just feel the walls rumble. We were always trying to get it, particularly me and Eddie, we were always trying to get it out of the studio, get a copy of it, go and have a listen. And you never could with him. He'd never let it out of the studio. You want to keep control in the studio and mix it. And I don't, I don't believe you can mix properly at that volume. Well, it's, you know, it depends what kind of sound you're going for. I mean, I would probably play between 100 and 110 dB. It'll get painful too much beyond that. It was one of my tools. It didn't seem to be going particularly well. He was taking about five days or something over the one step ahead, just the, just the one song, just to mix it. For me, it sort of felt weird. I was a bit excluded, really, from the mixing because Dave was just taking so long. This must have been the time when I had my first anxiety attacks because I remember going to, staying in a motel somewhere close to a place called The Farmyard, which is where David mixed Wayata. I can remember being quite out of sorts mentally at that point, unhinged. <laughs> oh, catching the most terrible scabies and had to bathe in hydrogen peroxide every night for a week. <laughs> at the same time as Wyatta was being mixed in England, True Colours was released by A&M Records UK. I wouldn't dream of it in the pale moonlight I wouldn't give myself off to sleep I may look like a fool
September 1980, Split Ends did a short English tour and made an appearance before 15 million viewers on Top of the Pops. The night that I Got You made it inside the top 20, the Ends played a sold-out concert at London's Hammersmith Odeon. Noel Crombie. It felt good to go back to London in particular. I mean, England had been really good to us, but London was the sort of fashion centre and you know, reactions there were always a bit guarded somehow. By that stage, we got airplay and everything. We got a lot more ordinary people in our audience, probably, who just were enjoying the music, you know. I wouldn't dream of it. I wouldn't dream of it. I wouldn't dream of it. No, no. I wouldn't dream of it. I wouldn't dream of it. I wouldn't dream of it. No, no. I wouldn't dream of it. Nathan Brenner. Well, I think they had a much harder road to hoe. In England, because they'd had a, a, a previous reputation that wasn't regarded as being great, they could at least do the Hammersmith Odeon. They could, you know, do 1,800 people in a top-flight venue that all the industry wanted. You know, there's Adam Ant over there, there's Phil Collins over there, there's Sting over there. You know, like everyone was in the green room. Suddenly, you know, the band was the bee's knees. Here we are, you know, packing out the Hammersmith Odeon, and we've got a hit single, and the, the night was just so special. Like often those kind of occasions are a big anticlimax, but that one we went on and just killed it. We knew, like the whole band was just juiced up and the adrenaline was flowing. We played superbly, and uh, it was just a magic night. For Englishmen Nigel Griggs and Malcolm Green, the night was particularly sweet. For me, it was just a uh, very personal thing because for once in my life, my mum and dad could actually see me do something. Because the way my life had turned out, everything that happened had happened outside of England. To have success in England and to share that with my my family was something special, you know, because they've they've only seen me as the bum musician, you know. And hey, when are you going to get the nice day job, Malcolm? You know, all that kind of stuff. And so, to all of you, Neil has a question. Neil, step forward and ask them the question, lad. What's the matter with you? Eddie Rayner. It certainly felt like we got somewhere. Yeah, we've become successful. But of course, the other side of the coin was playing the little pop songs, which and I, and I don't wish to demean the, the songs at all because I think they're clever little melodies. It's the melodies that we, that sell those songs and the lyrics.、Um, but it just felt like a hollow victory in a way for me. So you're not playing any of your old stuff and. You know that you're pretty much crowd pleasing, and it can become a bit mind numbing, <laughs> and it did for me, and I think it did for all of us. And、uh, we did still try and、uh, retain or try and incorporate as much improvisation as we could in the set.
In the United States, I Got You reached the top 40. The split ends tour crossed the Atlantic to where their new American management company, Champion, and the US headquarters of A&M Records were waiting for their new signees. They were convinced that we were the new cars, you know, and I Got You certainly had a good shot. I met the promotions guy who said straight up, single's going to be top 10 in three weeks. And, you know, we just believed him. We had New York management, we had everything going for us really. We had um, Tommy Mottola who's gone on to be the head of bloody Sony Records and was a big player even then with Hall & Oates and a few other people on his, on his books. The first thing he did for us was get us backstage at Talking Heads were playing with the big band at Central Park and we were able to stand side stage and watch that within an hour of getting it to New York. So that was like a pretty awesome way to arrive in, in New York really. It felt like we were living a rather charmed existence at that point. You know, and then driving around with Tommy Mottola, experiencing New York through Tommy Mottola's eyes, which, you know, going to his favourite Italian restaurants and, <laughs> you know, pretty mad, you know. Denver? We're going to have a good time tonight, I can tell. You know what we're going to do next? Have a guess. Come on, I have a few guesses. You must know some of our songs. I got... Nigel Griggs. We got into that whole thing where we were well over True Colours. We'd done it to death, sick to death of it, and didn't really want to play I Got You anymore because we'd just done it to death. And we were on to Wyata, and of course, in America, they just started on True Colours. So we had to go to... America and continue the True Colours thing. So we've, we were really ahead of ourselves in many ways. Desperately wanted to introduce new songs to people. Long before the people were really ready to let go of the old songs. Tim Finn. We didn't tour enough, you know, we just kind of tended to tour for about four or five weeks and then go home. And, you know, we didn't, no one really put too much pressure on us. They should have probably said, get a house in LA and tour for 12 months. But no one did say that to us. And also Nathan Brennan was out of control and had, had some appalling kind of run-ins with the record company and with Tommy Tyler and, you know, spitting in Tommy's face at, at, in front of a crowd at a gig and just unbelievable stuff. It's amazing and miraculous that he's still alive. This was about the time when uh, I had discovered that there were, in my opinion, discrepancies in relation to the tour accounting. Nathan Brenner. There were also uh, the view that I had whereby Tommy would talk to Tim and Neil and wouldn't talk to any of the other band members. And I considered that to be divisive. And I was very stressed. I was the tour manager. I was the manager. I was the production manager. I drove the Winnebago. I had calls all day and night, not from just America, but from England, what's the chart happening there, we've got a tour happening in Europe, there's a promotional tour in Paris, we've got to do this, Australia, we've got a tour, you know, I'm on the road, who was my assistant? I didn't have an assistant, it was just me. And it was not being helped by my American management partner being what we call Saturday night managers. They'd turn up for Boston, but they wouldn't be there on Monday for Peoria. And then um, my cousin, uh, who I hadn't seen for 10 years, happened to be Martin Scorsese's personal assistant and associate producer for his work. And Martin 
he was interested in looking at split ends. There's a possibility you could, that the band could do a soundtrack for his next film. He says, but Nathan, you've got to make sure he doesn't want to be recognised, he just wants to sit at a table, be left alone. And I say to Tommy, look, I've got Martin Scorsese coming tonight, can I have that table? You can have this other table I've arranged for you with the venue. And he said yes. Anyway, we're doing two shows that night, and I'm busy backstage. Then someone came and said, your cousin's here. So I went down and saw her, and she gets upset with me. And she said, Nathan, how could you? And I'm going, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, you know, Marty doesn't like to be set up. And I'm going, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, look, you know, he came in, he saw Tommy Mottola and Bette Midler at your table, and he turned around and walked out. And now I'm in trouble. And I went to Tommy and I said, what the hell do you think you're doing? And he says, well, you know, I want to represent Bette Midler, and I told her that she can meet Martin Scorsese tonight. And I lost it. I totally lost it. I took Tommy Mottola to task on it, and apparently someone had to pull me off him because I had a broken beer bottle in my hand and I was going to skewer him in the neck. I don't remember it, but I was, I was at breaking point and I felt that he, he put his own interests ahead of the band, not realising that if you push the band, your own interests will be served. The founder of Split Ends is Australian record company Mushroom Records, Michael Gidinski. Really, we had everything going for us with True Colours and how I got you never became a hit single as such is still beyond me to this day. It was a number one played album track and I was very, very disappointed. And I think that the antagonistic approach that Nathan Brennan brought into the management uh, certainly didn't help us with the Americans. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to the second show here tonight in Edmonton. <laughs> I hope you're all double happy. The first international territory to appreciate the act outside Australia and New Zealand was Canada. The Canadian label, the A&M people, just loved us. Canada is very similar to Australia and New Zealand. They don't need to be bribed to play songs. If they, at that stage, if they, if they liked the song, they'd play it. Canada was very enjoyable because it was like a surprise. It was different from everywhere else in a way because in New Zealand and Australia we had gradually built up to this over a number of years. and In Canada it was like we were overnight sensation or something. And so it come from a different point, and we were suddenly number one everywhere. It was really big in Canada. I enjoyed going there a lot. I remember Canada as being fantastic. Um, it, to me, it was like America with culture. I thought whatever we gave over there, we got back in return, you know, and it was, uh, I enjoy Canada. Um, America is just, it, it's a game. It, it's, you've got to play the game so much more, you know, and um, the end certainly aren't um, American in their way of thinking. <laughs> and they never knew how to take us either, really. In Canada, I Got You made it to number two. The True Colours album almost went platinum and many of the shows sold out. Split ends were all over Canadian radio. But in the US, radio stations weren't as keen and I Got You slipped out of the charts, as it also did in the UK. The rest of 1980 saw the band playing shows in Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, France, Scotland and England before they returned to Australia. In both New Zealand and Australia, radio was now playing the new single, One Step Ahead. Unfortunately, the forthcoming new album wasn't to be released until well into 1981. This was to allow the overseas record companies more time to work true colours. Early 1981 wasn't a good period for Mal Green. His commitment to the band came into question, as did his drumming. According to Eddie and Neil, Mal had a style all of his own. It was the triple bass drum. And only Malcolm could do that, really. Yeah, no one else has done it since. 
And I think it was when he reverted to boom, boom, chick, boom, boom, chicks when he got sacked. <laughs> Tim Finn. Malcolm was a... Uh, it seems funny now because he was such a good drummer, but he was a frustrated songwriter and he should have really just been happy in a way of just being a brilliant drummer, but somehow it would niggle away at him that he, he wanted to get his songs in there and we didn't really like them much, so it was a bit of a standoff. I didn't know how to tell him that I thought they were crap, you know. I probably said something like, look, we've got songwriters and we don't need any other songs at this point, you know, so just hang fire and you'll get your time. But he never did really. There was one song we did called Sooner the Better, which we demoed at Harlequin with Doug Rogers. That never made it to record either. reached the point where I was starting to um, behave in, in a kind of a juvenile way instead of keeping it more professional because I'm not being heard, you know. And, and I was quite young for my age, I think, in, in an emotional way then. So, yeah, I kind of lost a bit of interest to, to an extent, a bit like that kid who runs off and sulks, you know. And um, my last gig, I think, was the Sweetwaters. And uh, we were playing there with Roxy Music. It was like a co-bill, I think. And that was kind of on the eve of my birthday. And I didn't know it was going to be my last gig. We were at rehearsal before Sweetwaters, and I just remember him leaning on his drum kit while we were trying to jam. Just kind of tapping on the hi-hat, looking really bored. And then he went out and made coffee for himself, and Noel got on the kit and just went absolutely nuts on the, like the Muppets drum, really. And we, we went, wow, look at that energy. Noel used to take over from... Mel quite regularly just for fun at rehearsals, at sound checks or whatever. And Tim and I would be going, gee, Noel feels good to play with, doesn't he? Yeah, we'd look at each other and know what each other were thinking, you know, it would be much easier to have Noel because he's such a good guy, such part of the family and Mel was always a little bit outside the family, never felt quite like he was one of us, you know. Tim and I were going through a very bad phase. Uh, I mean, he just wasn't talking to me at all at that time, and, and it was really hurting me and frustrating me. And um, I remember going over to Ed's, you know, saying, look, I've had enough of this, and maybe I should leave the band. And Ed kind of said, well, look, well, maybe you should. And I thought, what? I was a bit gobsmacked by that. I mean, I was just sprouting my stuff, you know. I didn't really want to leave the band, and um, I just wanted things to get a little bit better and improve, and I was frustrated. And then I popped over to Nathan, the manager, and again went through the same rave, and then he just turned around and said, look, now you're fired. And I'm, I'm on board. Nigel Griggs. It was a tough one for me because, you know, Mal had opened the door for me. But, um, you know, the band had its own agenda and nothing stopped the band. Once the seed was sown, then things moved very quickly. We were about to go on a world tour at our peak... But this was split ends thinking. It was find the right person and they'll do the job. And we believed in Noel. We believed Noel could do anything. Noel Crombie. I guess it was just time for me to have a crack at it, you know. And I think downsizing again too was sort of in its way appealing. Certainly became a much kind of musically much leaner machine at that stage. Noel's like a primal drummer, I think. He, by that I mean... He probably doesn't know how he's playing drums half the time. It's not so much technique, it's primal, it's attitude, it's, you know, and I love that about it. Noel was obviously, he was a much more eccentric drummer, but nowhere near as kind of anchored and with a solid foundation of something like Malcolm, so it had a plus and a minus. I don't know what I'm doing, I'm just a woman. Sunday Night in Sydney brings back memories. Here's one about, uh, well actually it's from the new album, Corroboree, which comes out tomorrow I think, April Fools, yet again. Here's a new one from that, thank you band. Corroboree was the Australian title for the new album. In New Zealand and elsewhere it was called Waiata. Oh that was me again messing around with, you know, let's call it something different everywhere in the world. We'll use a local or indigenous title, if you like, for the album in all the different territories. The rest of the world didn't want to know about it. Once again, oh no, it'd be too confusing, you know. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so 
it only happened here in Australia and New Zealand. And so Waiata ended up being the international name. You know, Waiata. What's, what's Waiata? <laughs> Manager Nathan Brenner. The cover was black, brown and white. And when we presented it to the Americans, the American management company didn't like it. And so they rang up the label and they said, well, you don't like it either. Once again, the Americans got in, you can't have brown, it's the colour of shit, you can't use brown, you know, there's absolutely no way. And having sort of feeling, the feeling they'd missed the boat with true colours, decided that they'd do, I know what, we'll do different colours, you know. They came up with these putrid sort of pastel colours that was really disappointing. Corroboree debuted at number five on the Australian charts. Within ten days, the album had reached platinum status and Split Ends had begun their world tour. Dear Tim, I admire you very much and I think the ends are all fantastic. Better leave that till later. All right? Here's one that... Uh... Oh, shut up, Neil. Here... Honestly, you think he'd be more professional by now, really. Oh, well, I suppose he makes up for it with his songs. Neil Finn on the guitar is excellent and he does some vocals. In fact, the most popular songs uh, seem to be the ones that Neil, uh, the vocals uh, that Neil does. What is it? His music ability or his vocal ability or is it just the way he... What do you think? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, really, it's his, it's his hairstyle, really. Is it? Is that what really gets does up? capture me anyway. In fact, I'm looking forward to getting a hairstyle. I'm going to ask Neil tomorrow where he did get that cut. Yeah. Uh, because I'm interested in getting a hairstyle just like Neil's. You might start a new trend up in Cairns. Well, I could and I hope I do. Like any band of travelling musicians, Split Ends had their own ways of keeping themselves entertained. There was always egg fights and stuff going on in New Zealand. It depended on how we were travelling. If you get into two cars, if you get into two of anything, you've got, like, conflict. <laughs> Teams, you know. Your first stop after the airport would be the dairy and pick up a few dozen eggs and then it would be a lion wait for the other van, ambush, or high-speed dangerous passing manoeuvres with lobbing eggs at each other and massive wars basically all the way up and down the South Island and the trick would be to get to the uh, car wash in the next town and get everything cleaned up before the other car saw you again so that you could appear to have nothing wrong. This did become a bit of a tradition with bands in general in New Zealand I think. There wasn't really you know drunken nights and stuff like that in hotel rooms and you know women and stuff in swimming pool. A, a normal night on the road for split ends would be dart competitions. Paper Plains was huge for years because you're often on the 25th floor of some place and if you were lucky enough to have a window you could open you could chuck things out. You just have a whole room full of people folding up paper chucking it out the window, you know. Every now and then someone would get this great flight, you know, and be, yes, yes, and straight back for another one, you know. It became highly technical. We had books and everything. It wasn't just... Uh, and everything went. Telephone books, anything in the rooms went. You know, I remember some hotels we left the next day uh, going out the front door of the hotel and the street would just be littered with paper. Shocking, really. Hey, hey, are you ready to rock and roll? Okay, please welcome A&M recording artist Split Ends. Split Ends arrived again in America in May 1981. Eddie Rayner. We had this bus driver called Wrong Way Dave. Guess why he was called Wrong Way Dave? <laughs> One day we hopped in the bus somewhere like New York or something and then had to drive like five hours to Philadelphia or somewhere. And then three hours into the trip, we realized we'd gone diametrically in the wrong direction. So we ended up by spending 10 hours on that bus. And then in the States, of course, Buses have to be air-conditioned, they're not allowed to have windows that open, so, I mean, we're good, wholesome Kiwi boys, we like our fresh air, and most of the hotels in the States, none of the windows open, and it's like, you just go, you go bonkers. In Philadelphia, the hotel manager was an ex-policeman, and I went down and said, oh, can I get my window open, it's, it's, you know, we're supposed to have windows that open, he said, there's no windows that open in this hotel, and I 
turned away and kind of grumbled under my breath or something and he was just a guy who he had a bit of a short fuse and he came after me and I went into the cafeteria and Eddie was in there having some lunch. Sat down with him and this guy followed me in and said, you get out of my hotel, you can leave right now. And I was not in any mood to be compliant so I just basically told him to f*** off and that was just totally raised the thing and he grabbed me and manhandled me out of the cafeteria in a headlock. And, uh, and I was going, Eddie, Eddie, help! And Eddie was just laughing and waving at me. This guy's saying, do not utter the profanity again. And Neil's going, <laughs> to this guy's face. <laughs> this guy's wrestling him to the ground, and it's an arm, you know, a headlock and an arm lock and stuff, and, and it's getting very, very heavy. I was in his office eventually, and the police came, and they just thought it was the most stupid thing they'd ever heard, so... I didn't get chucked out of the hotel, and in about... Ten minutes later, Eddie came down and had a huge argument with the guy as well over the window not opening. And then about a month later, I read about Martin Chambers from the Pretenders putting his fist through a, a window in Philadelphia. And I um, later found out that it was the same hotel and it was the same situation. He just wanted that bloody window open. Good evening, Atlanta. Welcome to the Waiata Tour of the South. Thank you very much. There was two incidents with Nigel on, probably on the same tour, I think. He was pretty at odds with the rest of us in terms of uh, our schedules anyway he was he slept as long as he could possibly sleep and was always you know a bit grumpy in the morning there was the one incident where he slept in and couldn't be roused by the maids and there was no reply they kept knocking on the door knocking on the door tried to open it and the chain was across couldn't get in still no response from him and they actually assumed after a while that he was must be dead and so they got the fire brigade in hacksawed through the chain and Nigel actually woke up with three firemen standing around his bed <laughs> with all the utensils and everything and I'm sure it was the same tour and it was in Atlanta I think where he came down to the lobby and had an argument with the people in the lobby and the security guy took him aside and said look can you keep your voice down please we've got other guests here and there was a whole bunch of Japanese tourists checking in and I think Nigel just said look don't check in here it's a bloody shithole and the security guard got particularly aggressive with him and sort of manhandled him over to the side of the door and kind of with his hand on his gun. And I said, what are you going to shoot me, are you? Go on then, shoot me. <laughs> it was very extreme. The guy probably probably would have. Tell me, sir, what would you do if you were me? I'm skipping jump like a kangaroo. couple of shows in Europe, it was a very bad time really, I remember we did a couple in France, one in Germany or something, came on the end of a long bout of touring and uh, it was probably the worst time for me. We'd been touring too long and suddenly we'd been touring places where we were big and suddenly we were touring places where we weren't and we were travelling miles, gigs were getting cancelled and we were in a rotten bus and I remember we all went a bit crazy, I went a bit crazy at that stage. I did a few things that were a little bit unsavoury and perhaps could have been more well thought through before I did them. Like kicking a guy in the head from the stage in Germany was good. I was just some dickhead in the front row screaming obscenities at the band while we were trying to play. So I really fun kicked him in the head. <laughs> I think Noel dragged me off him. Tonight, I was terrible. You were good tonight. Neil was good. Eddie was good. Noel was good. Nigel was good. I was terrible. But I apologise for that. What and I want mean? to tell you that I, you? I don't expect... I Shut up, Neil. I, I know I'm that sorry, nobody but... takes me seriously. And you don't. I don't deserve to be taken seriously. I'm the biggest letters on God's earth. 
what the hell? I'm getting used to it, you know what I mean? Tim was so frustrated about, you know, his idea about the touring foreign, he should be in America and not touring, which was influenced by the American management. You should be here, you know, making your records here and touring here, and you should, you know, because that's the way it's going to happen. It's going to happen that way. And Tim didn't want to be in Germany, and, and, and he was so frustrated, he actually kicked Nigel. He kicked Nigel, who's the most nicest person. I don't want to suffer these conditions no more. I remember the German tour, I was really running off the rails a bit there and getting a bit strung out. It was hard, you know, and yet it was nothing compared to what a lot of bands do. But it wasn't that we were lazy or wussies about it, but somehow we'd get strung out and weird, weirded out pretty quickly on tour. So Germany was, a, was an odd time for me. Love's not a glimpse, it's a permanent rinse And it keeps you on your toes all day Every girl I met seemed to get apathetic when I looked at her that special way. I remember Tim having a couple of uh, big nights on the Terps. He ended up somewhat naively or innocently in a strip club, as legend has it, and, you know, it had already been had a pretty big night, so I didn't really know what was going on and, and got ejected by a huge German bouncer and this lady who was like a um, dominatrix type of woman and tipped upside down and had his pockets emptied and then proceeded to run through the streets of Munich, I think, casting off clothes and daring any policeman to come and arrest him. You know, I remember just wandering the streets in Munich and trying to find a way back to the hotel. It was just one of those places where I got lost for a couple of days. And it was hard, actually, because we'd come off the first wave of success with True Colours, and now we were trying to sort of make that spread into these kind of countries and just hitting brick walls. And yet the live shows were still going really, really well. So it was a funny schizophrenia about it all. Nobody takes me seriously anyway. Good night anyway. There were shenanigans on the road, particularly against Tim, and the disapproval of his behaviour manifested itself in things like taking the fire hose and putting it under his door and switching it on and, and just leaving it. It would spray the entire room, unbelievable arc of water. So you really couldn't not be involved. You had to join in or you'd, that would be your fate. The thing about hotels, I think, was that um, when you live in hotels, you, you've got to feel like you can be at home there, you know. You're not just treading around like, ooh, ooh, hotel, how special. Because they're not actually that special, even the good ones, you know. Uh, most people who work in hotels don't kind of get that that's where you live when you're there, that's your home. I'm pretty sure it was Nigel who superglued his furniture onto the roof <laughs> and had an upside down room. Because <laughs> it just goes, I mean, I mean, it sounds really childish, and it was really. One of the other favourite pastimes was called bunting, which was because we were in hire cars all the time. We developed a very strong disregard for property, <laughs> cars in particular, and used to drive into each other, you know, and all laughing about it. And a lot of people had real problems with that. In our total naivety, it was like, oh, the record company will pay for it, somebody else will pay for it. Of course, it all goes on the bill. It all gets recouped. We've just been employed by a driver, but there's two hundred k's to go. So some bastard lied to us. The bus was just very long distances and quite a lot of drinking from memory and you'd wake up with a hangover still on the bus, you know. I remember a whole bottle of vodka disappearing on one bus journey. But you know, we were no different from any other touring band, you've got to find ways to pass the miles. Good evening, brethren. The sun is shining. Here we are, on a bus in France. And it's time for me to make a very joyous announcement to you all. For years now, everybody has been under the impression that, and I like everybody else, that is heterosexual. <laughs> I'm glad that you're at least making the effort. The standard of humour is low but at least you are making an effort. Better to have bad jokes than no jokes at all. In England, 
The singles History Never Repeats and One Step Ahead failed to sell in great numbers, but the fans still filled the venues. After a short break, Split Ends returned to the United States and Canada. We went on tour with Tom Petty. It was supposed to be sort of equal billing because we were doing better than he was in Canada and he was doing better than we were in America, so we were supposed to go out in this sort of equal billing kind of thing, but we got shafted, really. (laughs) He wouldn't give us any um, sound check time, and in the end it became very apparent that it was actually subterfuge. They were trying to sabotage our shows, but made no difference. We still creamed it, yeah. Tom Petty, because he, he, like a lot of Americans, have a piss-poor attitude about Canada they gave a commensurate performance. The unfortunate thing is that Split Ends didn't, and we actually blew them off the stage. And in the paper the following day, it actually said words to that extent, and he was so upset they wanted to kick us off the tour. Yeah, they were assholes to us, basically. Um, Stevie Nicks was with them. You had to stay out of the hallway in the dressing room area if she was coming through, and, you know, there was minders and all that. So it was all very precious pop star wanky thing. And really, I mean, I, I personally, never, I hated Tom Petty. It felt like in the end that he should have been supporting us because we were getting such amazing responses and stuff. The Canadians were more inclined to give a thing a go, I think. And they also pride themselves, I think, on being a bit more kind of interested in quirky things, although, mind you, the music scene in Canada at that time was very dire, really. The the actual homegrown music in Canada was pretty bad. Having said that, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell is not a bad legacy, but we did stick out like a sore thumb, both visually and musically, really. It was strange. I remember we played to 18,000 people once in Toronto, I think it was, and uh, it was our show that people had actually bought tickets to come and see us, 18,000 of them. And I had a very weird out-of-body experience and didn't really enjoy it that much. It was was like I wasn't really there. And partly that was tour exhaustion, and partly I think was I didn't really like playing big crowds, even though the outdoor festivals are different again, but this was inside a stadium. It just seemed like everything had to be so big. And I just prefer the smaller rooms. I like playing to 1,000 people or 1,500 people. So that was an odd thing because we were aiming for that everywhere. We'd have loved to have had 18,000 people in every city across the States. But actually, if it had happened, I wonder how much of it would have been enjoyable. In territories where we got the resources, we had the success. How can we be, you know, a multi-platinum album band in Canada and 200 miles away, no one knows us. I put it down to the lack of focus of the American label, the New York office subverted a lot of things, uh, caused the band not to have success in America. We toured our tails off, we did Solid Gold, we did all these, we did TV, we did everything that had to be done. And history never repeats, it just laid there. For Tim, history kept repeating every night as he realised he was being stalked throughout Canada. It was a mother and daughter who they were sort of almost culty. They were in some sort of offshoot of Christianity. They used to wear these long dresses down to their ankles and, and they were always staying in the same hotel as us. And then the, the daughter would always be right under my microphone in the centre of stage. When I ran out into stage, new town, you know, new night. But there she was again, night after night. And I, it started to really bug me because you want every night to be different. So, you know, I sort of started kind of almost screaming at her and I don't know I just it became a bit obsessive and I got our tour manager to actually take her out of the crowd one night because I got sick of seeing her there it sounds really harsh but to me there was something odd going on and um, her mother even got involved and I said to her mother at one stage in some hotel lobby I said look you shouldn't really be encouraging this your daughter seems seems a bit obsessed you know it's just getting a bit much and she said she's a better person than you'll ever understand young man and the last night we were there in Canada, that was when I got her taken out of the theatre. Just That was it. The mother rang me up the next morning. There was morning we were due to fly home. And she said, you can't stop us loving you, and put the phone down on me. So, you know, and years later I actually saw them in Toronto and they seemed fine. So it was probably my paranoia as much as anything. But it, to me it was just an unbearable sameness about every night. <laughs> Eddie Rayner. 
There's a certain amount of unhinging that goes on when you go out on the road for that long. And um, people do weird things. Your mind's become a bit addled, really. Mine didn't, though. Eddie and I had a fight in Canada. Nathan Brenner. When a 500-pound jersey jumper that I had, he, he ripped it. He ruined it. He ripped my new jersey, my new jumper. And uh, I got very pissed off with him. He began to start to rough me up a bit. And in actual fact, backstage, where we were playing, I think it might have been Quebec, there was a, a very large uh, flat suspended from the ceiling with a big steel wooden bar at the bottom. And Eddie took that thing and he pulled it back and he just let it go. And it hit me in the head. And I actually had to go back to the hotel because I had concussion. Yeah, he, I think he wound up in hospital that night because he had a heart attack. And, and subsequent to that, I really didn't want to have very much to do with him. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.